Hi everyone, welcome back to the Mind Bogglers. So for today's episode, we're going to be talking about something really interesting. Honestly, I'm never a big fan of those gruesome horror movies, but one particular movie which I know for sure a lot of you guys have already heard of, it's one of Ari Aster's movie. He is the director and writer of Hereditary and one of the movies that piqued my interest called Midsommar. Okay, just a little disclaimer, for today's episode, we're going to be talking about a case that is kind of similar in a sense to the movie Midsommar. So, Midsommar is a folk horror, and this movie is known to be insane, like one of the most unsettling horror movie ever. It's even rated as NC-17, which is a rating worse than the rating R, which is super crazy. And the difference between this horror movie and the others is that it partakes in the daytime. So, like most horror movies you watch, they always kind of partake in the nighttime, right? To make it even scarier because night and darkness represents like evil and feeling uneasy etc and vice versa but this movie is special because it happens in the daytime and everything is bright and sunny and everyone's wearing white but still this movie manages to unsettle you and gives you goosebumps and makes you want to throw up literally and so let's talk a little bit about this movie so huge spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't watched this but you know what i feel like even if i do spoil it to you guys it would make no difference when you watch it by yourself like what I'm about to tell you is not enough credit to put on the whole horrendous entirety of the movie. And so the movie begins with a woman by the name of Danny, who is a college student, and she had just lost all of her family to her sister's murder-suicide that led to the death of her parents. So keep in mind that the movie starts with Danny being profoundly alone, right? And the only person she has at that time is her shitty, emotionally abusive boyfriend by the name of Christian, who, by the way, did a terrible job being the boyfriend of someone who just lost their entire family like honestly the conversations they had together in the movie is just super hard to watch because he constantly gaslights her and the emotional manipulation is just really super sad to watch like he's so evasive and he keeps pushing her away when she's literally in her lowest point i mean she just lost her family right and i feel like the only thing she needed that time is for someone to be there for her and the way christian pushes her away is like for example he goes to like parties and when danny's like hey i want to come too Christians are like, no, you should get some sleep, etc., right? Which is so annoying to watch. And this behavior leads to Danny finding out that Christian is going to go to Sweden with his friends without telling her anything about it. So Christian was going to go to Sweden to attend this festival that happens once every 90 years, which by the way, is a place where his friend Pele grew up, right? And Danny ended up guilt tripping Christian into taking her to Sweden with him and his friends. Fast forward to when they arrived there, they were in this beautiful, like, escape of land and they were greeted by this community of people that calls themselves the Harga. These people right off the bat seemed so nice like they were welcoming and they hugged each other and everything and they were all wearing white and they greeted the guests with like this shroom tea you know like drug mushroom tea which is super crazy. So let's talk a little bit about the Harga. Okay, so you're not gonna know about this until the middle to the end part of the movie, but the Harga is like this reclusive group, which roles are heavily gender segregated, right? So women do all the cooking and taking care of the children, and all the men do the labor stuff, etc. And this is a very weird part of the movie, but even breeding is closely regulated by the elders. So like you're not allowed to make babies without permission. And the elders would pick who can do the breeding, right? Because it turns out they idolize genetic purity. So what is genetic purity? Well, genetic purity refers to the trueness to type. So in other words, they want their community to be 100% their type. 
Like they even allow cousins to, you know, breed because they want to keep the family line. Um, how do you say this with caucasity? You know what I'm saying? So they want to keep their family line white in a sense because they're all white. Because they believe that genetic purity is next to divinity. Also, this is a weird part. They have oracles, right? And these oracles are the product of people who are conceived because of inbred. You know how incest most likely to produce children that are like disabled? Well, there's this disabled boy by the name of Ruben, and the Harga believes that he's still pure because he's not clouded, because he's like disabled mentally and physically. So he would draw in a piece of paper, and the elders would interpret the drawings to writings and make it into. To an oracle. Another thing about the Harga is that they would bring in outsiders to stop the population of their community becoming too inbred, but only like the white ones. And so the Harga's lives are actually very, very strictly regimented. Like throughout their entire life, it's already planned for them. So from birth until 18 years old is childhood. From 18 years old until 36 years old, they go on what they call to be a pilgrimage. From 36 until 54, they would become laborers, and from 54 until 72, they become mentors. And when they are 72, they would take their own lives in a ritual called the Atastupa. So this ritual, or they call it the Atastupa, is where the elders commit suicide by jumping off a cliff and getting their faces literally deteriorated by getting slashed with a huge hammer. I don't know what the hammer thing is called, but after they fall from the cliff, people would smash their heads with that huge hammer. And so back to the movie, Danny, Christian, and his friends arrive there. And the friends of Christian are by the name of Mark, Josh, and Pele, right? And fast forward to a few minutes after the first 50 minutes of the movie, they were called to gather around this cliff. And at first, they didn't know what was going on, right? But they were actually about to witness the Atastupa ritual, where these two elders would jump off a cliff because it's the end of their life cycle, right? And so Danny, after witnessing that, she went to this mini psychotic break, you know? Being a person who lost her family due to a murder-suicide might have taken a massive, massive toll on her, right? And by that time, she was already begging to get away from that place. But Christian was like, yeah, that's just really terrible, but I'm keeping an open mind. I mean, this is their culture, so let's just stay here a little bit longer, etc. And so Danny had no choice but to like do whatever Christian said, right? Also, another reason on why Christian and their friends were there is because they were planning on doing their final thesis on the Harga culture. Okay, so after after the Atastupa ritual, things started to go downhill. Remember when I said that the Hargas aren't allowed to make babies without the elder's supervision? Well, the elders are also the one who choose the two people who would later mate with each other. And so there's this girl by the name of Maya, and she's already coming of age. So that means she's already allowed to have sexual intercourse and carry a child. And Maya and the elders, they have been eyeing on Christian for a while. Like they think that Christian would be perfect to be the baby daddy of Maya, right? And so this is really weird, but like she started to with him little by little, looking at him in the eyes and stuff, and then things started to escalate because then she would put this love stick underneath Christian's bed. And when Christian's friend Josh confronted Pele about it, all Pele said was, Oh, my sister Maya has a crush on you, and also she's already come of age, so that means she can have sex. And Christian was like, Um, okay, that's good for her, right? Now, this is when things start to get weirder. Christian was given food and drink by the Harga, right? And in that food, there were strands of Maya's pubic hair, and in the drink was Maya's period blood. So he was eating.
eating Maya's pubes and drinking Maya's period blood, which is super disgusting and crazy, right? You know, a lot of cultures in the world actually think that period blood can act as a love spell. That's why there's like the saying, don't let your husband eat spaghetti from your neighbor's house. Cause you know, maybe they would put period blood in the spaghetti sauce. Like a lot of people think that it could act like a love spell, but in reality, it's just the most unsanitary thing ever in the world. And so back to the movie, at this time, Christian's friends got in trouble a lot because they just literally disrespect the whole culture and tradition of the Harka. So one of Christian's friends, which is Mark, he peed on one of the ancient dead trees that means so much for the Harka people, right? And this dude, this one dude was about to fight him and he was like, what are you doing, you fool? But Mark is such a douchebag, he was being all defensive about it instead of like saying sorry and stuff like that he was all like geez it's just a dead tree so what which is so disrespectful other than mark another guy named josh he disrespected the oracles as in the product of the inbreeding like i told you about because he was shown off it by the elders but then he asked if he could take pictures for his thesis right but the elders strictly refused but then Josh took the pictures anyways. They both ended up dead later in the movie, but they were like killed off screen. And Mark's body was like skinned and the person who killed Josh was wearing the skin of Mark while he was killing him. So it was super terrifying. And so fast forward to the day where they want to elect the May Queen. Basically, they have this dance competition where they have to take this shroom tea, like mushroom drug tea, and whoever last standing would be crowned as the May Queen. And Danny was partaking in the dance competition. And while this occurs, Christian was called to meet one of the elders of the community and he was told to have sexual intercourse with Maya. But the thing is, he didn't refuse or like ask of anything. And I don't even know why. Like, if you're in a relationship with someone and someone says, hey, you have to have sexual intercourse with this girl, you would be like furious. Like, what the fuck are you saying? You know, like, that's just so disrespectful, etc. But no, Christian was just like, he didn't say anything. He was just like, not even one question. So then after the talk, he went back to the field to watch the dancing competition again and sat down with the others, right? And suddenly, this girl came up to him and gave him this drink. And listen, if I was him and I just had a conversation with the elder saying that I have to have sex with Maya, I would be very cautious on the drink they gave me, right? Because like, I'm probably gonna get drugged. Like, that's the first thing I have in my mind. Like, that should be the first thing everybody has in their mind. And even after he refused, he was like, yeah, no, I'm not gonna drink that because I'm scared I'm gonna have a bad trip, you know? He drank it anyways. It's like, what? You know, you could have just like poured it on the grass or something, right? And at this time, Danny ended up winning the competition and was crowned as May Queen. And they had this huge feast and she was treated so nicely. She was carried by them and people were hugging her, cheering her, etc. And Christian, at this time, he was drugged out of his mind and he kept touching his pee-pee. So I'm assuming the drink that was given to him was like some kind of Viagra, right? To keep him kind of stimulated and ready for the breeding. And they have this tradition where the May Queen blesses the crops in the crop fields, which is a few miles away, so they had to take her by cart. And Danny actually asked everyone whether or not Christian would come with her, right? But the elder said no, because then when Danny was away to bless the crops, they were having another ceremony, which is a breeding ceremony. So they let Christian into this barn and drugged him even more with this like smoke thing. The elder said it was for his stamina and asked him to inhale. And for some reason, he just did it anyways without questioning anything, right? Which is like so weird to me. And then he entered this room. In the middle of the room was Maya completely naked with her legs spread apart. 
and she was laying on top of these flowers. Around her were women. Some were elder women, completely naked, and they had their arms on each other's shoulders. So you know they're making like a half circle, like shielding for them or something. I don't know what they were doing, and they were singing and chanting. And Christian then walks in and proceeded to mate with her. And at this time, Danny was already back from blessing the crops. And this is where a lot of people think that this was intended, like this was an intentional thing. So after Danny was back, one of the girls kind of lured her near the barn where Christian was doing it, the barn where the breeding ceremony happened. And Danny then kind of heard the moaning from the bar because the elders were like moaning and stuff in there. And she asked the girl what the sound was, right? And the girl answered with, "It's not for us." But Danny ended up checking it out anyways, right? And this is when things really started to become a shit show. Danny then peeked inside of that barn and she saw Christian in front of her doing it with someone else. And this gave her a panic attack. And after seeing that, she immediately threw up and cried so loud. And the Harga girls came. And took her to her room, and this is a little bit weird. But the way they cheered her up is they would scream as loud as she did, kind of mimicking her emotions in a way, which I find very interesting. Because I'll be honest with you, if I have a panic attack, that is how I want people to like comfort me. Like, yes, girl, scream with me, right? Okay, so fast forward to the ending of the movie. The Harga's last ritual was to sacrifice nine lives to be burned alive, right? Like some of them even volunteered to be burned alive, and for the last life, the May Queen. Gets to decide who to kill. She has two options: it's either Christian or a random person. And Danny then chose Christian to be burned alive. And so they put Christian inside of a bear. So it's like he's wearing a bear suit, but it's like a real bear. And continue to burn him alive with eight other people. And Danny, at first, she was crying. She was like frantic, but then slowly turned that crying into a smile. And that's the end of the movie. Trust me, it's way more intense when you watch the movie by yourself. So a lot of people actually feels empowered by the movie, not realizing the fact that it's mostly about how the Harga is grooming Danny into joining their cult. Well, a lot of people actually put this movie into that good for her genre. You know, like when the main antagonist is the boyfriend and how shitty he is, and at the end of the movie, the main protagonist, which is the main woman lead, did something to them that they truly deserve. And in this movie, Danny burned Christian to death, and a lot of people see. This as like a bridge to burn or something, and Danny is burning figuratively and literally the bridge between her and her sad and tragic past. And the smile at the end of the movie symbolizes finding joy again after so much pain. Even if that joy was brought about by something awful, it just feels like a new beginning for Danny, right? That's what a lot of people interpret from the ending of the movie. But there are actually a lot of like Reddit threads, even YouTube videos showing how this movie brainwashes you, like how the Harga brainwashes Danny. And so for today's episode, the case that we're going to be talking about is the case about the Laverty brothers, who started a cult by the name of. School of Prophets. Now let's kind of dig deeper into the techniques that predatory groups like cults, even the Harga from that movie, have honed to perfection for decades. So acolytes of horror said in one of their videos, specifically about this movie, that cults hide their horror in the daylight and use worship and ritual as a form of psychic bombardment. So if you haven't already know about this, every brainwashing story begins in the same place, which is loneliness. Real-world cults are actually filled with lonely people who are desperate to look for a place where they quote unquote. Belong. There's this Harvard professor of psychiatry by the name of Dr. John G. Clark, 
who wrote that cult recruiters are often found in bus stations, airport, rallies, anywhere that unattached people would be passing through because loneliness makes us reach outside of ourselves to find anywhere that we might belong. And so in the video of Acolytes of Horror that talks about how cults kind of brainwashes you into joining them, the techniques is divided into four parts, where the first is targeting lonely people like I told you about, and the second being blinding them with sunshine. So how does this work? Well, there's a woman who escaped a doomsday cult by the name of Worldwide Church of God. And she wrote afterwards that the indoctrination process was the best part of being in the group. New people were invited to dinner, questioned intensely about their past, offered home-cooked meals and support around the home. They also had their cards filled with happy social events and just completely love-bombed. Love-bombing is a very common manipulation tactic. It also often happens in toxic relationships where the intention of the good deeds and doing good things is for the purpose of codependency. So you intentionally give them superficial affections and grand gestures, etc. so that they become codependent on you. See, niceness lets the barriers down. It also stops the appropriate boundaries from being in place whenever someone feels uncomfortable. But these people just think that it's a small price to pay because who doesn't want to be a part of an intoxicatingly nice community, right? And so the third part is exhaust them with stress. So brainwashing is just a matter of mental exhaustion. You can't really control someone over just kindness alone. That's why cults constantly keep their members stressed and tired. They make sure that more of the members' time and money and energy are demanded. Sometimes they even physically or sexually abuse the members. And if any of the members are asking questions or being you know, critical about the situation, they would just be evasive and say something along the lines of, Oh, maybe you're not as pure as the rest of us. Maybe you don't really belong here. This may sound familiar to anyone who's been in a toxic relationship. After the love bombing and you have no sense of boundary left, everything is demanded from you and you feel like it's your job to fulfill that. You feel like it's your responsibility to fulfill the demands and expectations because then they would kind of threaten you, saying things like, Oh, maybe we should break up or you know, after everything I've done for you, etc. Right? This is also the reason why, like, doomsday preachers are always thinking of new dates for the apocalypse or other cults trying to find new ways to scare the hell out of their members. And the fourth part is worship together. Worshiping something together makes you feel included and it's intoxicating. It's like you're sucked into this intoxicating void of whatever you're worshiping of, like some kind of mass hysteria of some sort. Worship is an act of attaching yourself not only to the higher something, but to the people you are worshiping with. And as you're doing that, it's as if you're stripping down and showing your vulnerability. And vulnerability is the key for people to surrender. And usually in cults, vulnerability is exploited. So those four techniques actually mirror the tactic and power dynamics in toxic relationships or relationship where there is often emotional and physical abuse, the giving and taking of love and affection, like push and pull, the demeaning, the isolating from friends or even family, and the use of sex as a control instrument. And the truth is nobody is really immune to the manipulation of some of the ugliest ideas of human society. But people don't fall into the hands of like cults or toxic relationships because of some moral failing or because they lack of intellectual ability, they do it because their conditions leave them so isolated and alone in their struggles that they will take any offer of community and support that's given to them. And so now that we have a good enough understanding of what a cult is, let's continue to today's case which is the Utah v. Laverty or the case of the Laverty brothers. 
So this case happened in the state of Utah in 1984 and began with a man by the name of Dan Laverty. So Dan was a strict Mormon man with a wife, a daughter, and two stepdaughters. And he also raised his daughter in a very, very strict Mormon way. And in the Mormon faith, men hold the priesthood. So they have like the authority over the household. Like the man has the voice, the man makes the decision for the family, and Dan was just this very dominating father figure, right? He was also a chiropractor, like those people who crack bones. And in his household, he's just known to be this iron-fisted dad, especially with his two stepdaughters from his wife's previous marriage. He would cut their hair and make them look like boys and told them that they were not to date any boys ever. And they can't listen to music, any kind of music. And he actually at one point pulled them out of public school. And things started to go downhill when one night his wife caught him and her daughter. So him and his stepdaughter in her room and she was sitting on his lap and Dan was sexually assaulting her by touching her bare breasts. And after getting caught, he swore that it will never happen again and he punishes himself by putting a pebble inside of his shoe. It's like so that the hurting makes him remember to not want to touch her again, etc. I don't know how the logic of that works, but whatever, let's just continue. But the thing is, the pebble didn't work because soon after he started doing it again and it was more than just fondling her boobies, he straight up wanted to have sex with her. He wanted to have sex with his stepdaughter, which is super disgusting, right? And this is a little bit messed up, but his real kid, his biological daughter, which is a girl by the name of Rebecca. This got her kind of jealous. She was like, did he love her more than he loves me? And in one of the interviews, she said, and I quote, I don't want to be molested, but why did he give her attention and not me? Which is just so messed up. And things escalated quickly because then he wanted to practice polygamy and wanted to take his 14-year-old stepdaughter as his second wife. But luckily, neither his wife or the Mormon church would stand for that. And so they refused to his idea of polygamy, right? And the Mormon church soon excommunicated him and his wife did too. And so he took his quote-unquote worshipping elsewhere with two of his brothers by the name of Ron and Alan. And this is when they started the cult by the name of School of Prophets. They proclaimed themselves as the prophets of God. And one of their main beliefs is polygamy. So they were allowed to have more than one wife. But the thing is, their legal wives were against this practice, especially Alan's wife by the name of Brenda. Brenda is very out spoken and educated. And one day she decided to visit Ron and Dan's wives, right? Telling them that they have options. They can leave the relationship because this is starting to become abuse, right? And this leads to Ron and Dan's wives finally had the guts to leave them. And soon after, this is really messed up, but Ron said that he received a revelation, a prophecy, and he wrote it all down. And he said that God wanted him to kill both Brenda and her baby because she was the one who encouraged his wife to leave him. Brenda as in his sister-in-law. Can you believe it? And so Ron immediately told Dan about it and they decided to do it. They decided that they were going to murder Brenda because they kept thinking that it was God who wanted it. And they then both jumped into the car and went to Brenda's duplex where she lived. And Brenda actually already had a feeling when she saw them outside of her house. And Ron went out first to knock on the door while Dan stayed in the car for a bit. But Brenda didn't let him in until a few moments after when she opened the door just a crack. And that's when Ron forced his way into to the house to murder her. And after he forced his way into the house, he proceeded to beat her as she was pleading and saying, please, please don't hurt my baby. Please do anything, but don't hurt my baby. And so what was Dan doing in the car? Well, he was praying. 
and he felt like he needed to pray and he was saying things like okay god i guess this is my part if i shouldn't do this please send me a sign send me an angel to stop me and then he proceeded to walk into the house and he saw brenda just laying there and he took the telephone cord to choke her kind of stopping her from breathing and proceeded to slit her throat and then he went into the baby's room and killed the baby soon after alan their brother came into his house and was completely out of his mind he was screaming and the neighbors even heard him screamed so loud and immediately called the police after calling the police he called his mother who was also screaming in disgust because this is just a big tragedy right and ron and dan laverty were arrested at circus circus casino in reno nevada they represented themselves a trial and dan was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison and ron was convicted and sentenced to death for devising the murder plot and to this day dan laverty spends his days in maximum security wing of the utah state prison and when he was interviewed about his murder of his sister-in-law and niece he remembers it as if it was yesterday and he said a couple of just messed up things like and i quote he said this it's never haunted me it's never bothered me i don't blame anyone for not understanding it but if you had done it it wouldn't haunt you either. He also said that he doesn't think he will die in prison. He believes that the walls will crumble and he will emerge as this biblical prophet Elijah announcing the second coming of Christ. So at this point, he's just like straight up delusional, right? Uh, and so that is it for today's episode, you guys. I hope you guys enjoy it and wait up for the next one. Bye.